The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about so many really important studies, like consumer studies, on consumer study breaches, you know, security breaches and medical identity theft and use of cloud. And we have my very favorite guest who comes on quite often because he is just brilliant and he's a great guy, brilliant, wonderful friend as well, Dr. Larry Poneman. So if you haven't heard him before, you will just totally enjoy him, but you can listen to archived interviews about him and uh, when I interviewed him before. Dr. Poneman is one of the most respected voices in privacy, data protection, and information ethics. In 2002, he founded the Poneman Institute, which was headquartered in northern Michigan, and to be the, he was the preeminent research center uh, dedicated to advancing privacy and data protection, and it's still very, the very top research. And you may read them about them in the New York Times, the Washington Post, their studies are just very well respected. Prior to founding the Institute, Dr. Poneman was a senior partner at Price Waterhouse Coopers, where he led compliance risk management services for the worldwide firm. And Dr. Poneman has served on the Federal Trade Commission's Advisory Committee for Online Practices, and he's also served for the Office of Privacy Protection in California, and he currently serves as chairman of the Council of American Survey Research Organization's Government Policy Advisory Committee. And he heads the wonderful, responsible information management uh, for the Poneman Institute. And you can learn a lot more about the great programs and research that they do at Poneman.org. And I want to thank you so much, Larry, for joining us all the way from the Midwest. <laughs> thank you so much, Mary. I love when you introduce me. They're the greatest introductions. And it is a pleasure, as always, to be on your show. You are the best interviewer and a wonderful friend. <laughs> well, I just, I really learned so much from you. You are a great mentor. Let's talk about some of these great studies that you've done in 2012. Sure. One of them was called the Consumer Study Breach, Consumer Study on Data Breach Notification, which has been a huge issue for years now. Let me ask yeah. you the first question. So what are consumers' reactions to data breach notification? What about when they get those notices in the mail? What do they think? Well, you know, it's not surprising that most people get really annoyed, assuming, assuming they know they are receiving a notification because the majority of people probably think it's junk mail, so they don't read it. 
So it's like the ignorance is bliss. If you don't know that there's something out there that could hurt you, you don't worry about it. But for those people that actually read their mail and they see that, they, that their data was lost or stolen, I think for the most part, most people get pretty angry. Yeah, and they, you know, they feel kind of impotent. They don't really know what to do either. Yeah, we we find that over and over again. You know, the idea is that well, a company's letting me know that my data is lost. So what does that mean? Does that mean I have to worry? Am I going to become an identity theft victim? Right. Is the company going to help me? So they have a lot of questions, and usually there are very few answers. Exactly. So let's talk about the importance of the notification following a data breach. Why why is it so important? Maybe you know, ignorance is bliss. What do you think? Well, ignorance is bliss but only to a point in time. So, for example, if you didn't know that your data was lost or stolen and later you find out that you're an identity theft victim, you might put two and two together and see that it equals four. Basically, I think the uh, a good notification is, in fact, trustworthy. It's believable. It doesn't understate or overstate. It just explains the facts. And organizations that at least make you feel like they're in partnership to help you, that in the event that you're data is stolen and you do get into trouble, that the company is going to stand behind you and kind of not let you dangle in the wind. And we basically see a lot of organizations that are starting to look at that, you know, what what's the commitment beyond the notification that uh, they need to make in order to preserve trust between the company and the organization. So we're starting to see more organizations taking that seriously. And, you know, in California, we've passed laws that have made it important that the that companies must actually tell you what kinds of information was lost or stolen. It's very different if you have your, for example, your social security number stolen versus whether you have maybe your credit card number stolen. There's, there's a huge difference in that. Or if you just have information about where you live versus your your account numbers. So it's really important that people know. So, for example, if my checking account numbers were stolen along with my name and my social and my birth date, I would want to just close those accounts and open up new accounts immediately. But exactly. If, yeah, so people don't know what to do if they don't know exactly what is stolen. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and in fact, I really think the regulation that it says, look, it's not just generic data. This is exactly the type of information that's lost or stolen that's a big deal, and it helps the consumer understand whether they are really at risk or not. So as you said, if it's just my name, like a username, and maybe you know the last four digits of my Social Security number, that will lead to one response. But if it's my name, my date of birth, my full Social Security number, or my driver's license number, that becomes a, bigger, a much bigger deal. But there is a, another side to this, and that is sometimes we'll just say, you know, it's just my name and my email, like in a LinkedIn data breach. And yet, uh, with that information, a bad guy can do a whole bunch of bad things. Like they can assume your identity in a social media site, and they can use that as an opportunity to spare fish and collect information to give them more and better details about the victim. So sometimes by saying, well, don't worry, it's just your name and your email address, you still have to worry, but not at the same level as if it's like, say, your social security number. Right. And, you know, that makes a big difference, whether it's a social media website like LinkedIn or Facebook or, or one of the those kinds, because so many people put up so much information there and often very personal information. What do you think about that, Larry? Like, I'm on Facebook, but I, I'm pretty careful not to put personal stuff up, and I'm on LinkedIn. 
What do you think about all these people sharing a lot of information about their children, their grandchildren, their friends? Their how, how does that worry you, or doesn't it? Yeah, it it, it actually is a shock to me <laughs> because you know you're in trouble when your mother, who you know is like ninety years old, and she's posting photographs of the family on her you know her website, her Facebook. Um, my guess is that um, it it can be a big problem especially for people who today are privacy complacent. They don't really care about privacy. So they say, look, it's just a photograph of me drinking <laughs> at a college you know, dorm party or whatever. Later in life, that photograph is still going to be accessible, probably through you know, all sorts of channels, and it could prevent things from happening, like getting a job offer, getting promoted, being taken seriously, getting sworn into a, 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 a judge position somewhere or the, or the uh, Supreme Court. So these kinds of issues can be pretty serious, and yet people just are not paying attention to it until, unfortunately, it may be too late. Exactly, and once it's up there on the Internet, it, it really is not going to go anywhere. I mean, yeah, it, forget about it. Once yeah. it's, you know, it's, as I say in New Jersey, forget about it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> exactly. So what did you find in this study? What are the expectations that consumers have when they do receive this breach notification? Well, in, in general, I think consumers have reasonable expectations. They expect the organization that has a breach to explain in clear and concise language what really happened. They like to know what type of data was lost or stolen. If it was stolen, okay, what's, who are the bad guys? How are they captured? Were they thrown in prison? So they understand that there's an outcome, that, uh, so it's not just, just an ongoing nebulous thing. And I think they also like the idea that the company is going to help them out in the in the event that they find themselves, as, you know, a victim of identity theft or some other identity crime. So that's a big deal for a lot of people. And so some organizations might say, you know, it's a pretty big expense, you know, to pay a year or two years of of identity monitoring or identity protection service services for a data breach victim, but if you think about the lifetime value of a customer that would otherwise leave your organization, it's chump change. It's a very good investment. So I think people want to see that engagement. People hate when uh, the data breach notification simply says, you're, <laughs> you're on your own, kid. You know, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not our problem and all of that legalese. I think that's a big problem to organizations in terms of reputation and trustworthiness. Yeah. So in terms of what you recommend to companies, I know you deal with a lot of companies. I know that yep. a lot of the RIM people are from major companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are the kind of best practices for organizations in terms of recommendations and how to really treat people when you do find out about a breach? Yeah, great, great question, as usual, Mari. But basically what we find out is that the notification is just one communication. So you, what you want to do is make sure that you have the opportunity to talk to consumers who have questions and concerns. You don't want them vi- visiting a crummy website and providing you know, their questions in email. That's not the way to do it. You want a personalized touch. People who are really concerned about their data being lost or stolen it may only be 4 or 5% of your database of data breach victims. It may not be a large percentage, but they can do a lot of damage to an organization and its reputation. So you'd have to treat everyone as if they're your best customer, and you have to listen to their concerns and provide them with realistic outcomes. You know, if, in fact, data is stolen, 
Well, it's, li- it's more likely than not that that information will end up in the hands of a bad guy. They may not do anything with it, but they might, and it might happen years down the road. See, organizations need to be sensitive to their customer, the consumer, who finds himself a victim. And my guess is if you do that, plus you maybe make an investment in trying to protect identity you know, after the data breach, I think that could be a good move. The key variable for an organization is to protect reputation and to make sure that you don't have massive churn. You don't want a lot of people leaving the organization as a customer because it takes a lot of resources to keep a customer, and you don't want to lose a customer because they're angry at the way their data has been handled and protected. And also, another issue is learn from mistakes. A lot of companies don't have one data breach, but they have many data breaches, and they happen all the time. The key here is, one, you, you could probably, you know, you get a little bit of slack, you know, the consumer might say, look, I'm, I'm angry, but I'm not going to churn. But two or three data breaches is unacceptable to just about everyone. So you want to avoid that phenomenon if you could help it. And, you know, I know you've talked so many times, I've, I've heard when I've come to your meetings about on the front end about not collecting information that you don't need and segregating the really sensitive data and encrypting it and making sure that, you know, on the front end that you're safeguarding the the information so that if there is a data breach, you might not even have to disclose it because it might be encrypted or it might be protected in such a way that the bad guys can't really get access to it. It's, it's amazing how many companies make that mistake. Encryption is relatively inexpensive. It's cheap when you think about the consequences of not having encryption. And you don't have to encrypt everything, but you definitely want to encrypt the data that you've identified as confidential, sensitive, the type of data that in the hands of a bad guy could cause a lot of damage. So, again, companies need to make an investment. There's a cost-benefit equation. Usually the benefit is a lot larger than the cost. We did a study oh, I don't know, probably about a year ago for a company called WinMagic, and they are in the hardware encryption business. They have a nice product. Uh, and basically what we found in the total cost of ownership model is that you know, the, the, the return on investment for encrypting hard disks, either uh, hardware encryption or software-based encryption, was something like 25 to 1 ratio. Yeah. So you know, there's really no excuse. Uh, of course, companies have a busy agenda and takes time to encrypt, and someone has to be responsible for it, and you have to manage encryption keys. So it's not completely easy, but if you do it right, you could save huge costs in the event of a data breach. Right. And, you know, we have people driving by that are maybe small companies and, you know, maybe even somebody who works from their home, and they go, well, gee, I, you know, I can't afford to do all this. Well, what do we say to small companies? You know, I read somewhere that 90% of all companies in this country are small, small to yeah. medium-sized companies. Yeah. So, you know, I know that you deal with a lot of large companies, but what about these companies that are driving by here that are, that, it, you know, maybe they have maybe 10 to 20 employees? What, what about them? Yeah, that's another great question. It's kind of interesting because, now just thinking about cybercrime, it's one aspect of a data breach, but... We just did a study, and we found that smaller organizations <clears throat> excuse me, are more susceptible to certain types of cybercrimes than large organizations. You're probably saying, what? Why would that be the case? Because the traditional thinking is that big companies have a bigger bullseye. So if you're a bad guy and you're trying to break in, it's better to break into Citibank than into mom-and-pop 
bank in somewhere in Wisconsin, right? I mean, yeah. it seems like that's a sensible, rational strategy for a bad guy, but actually it's not. The bad guy realized a long time ago that they can go into the little company, and through the little company they can attack the big company through malware and botnets and viruses and trojans because the little company is doing business as a business partner with the big company. Or the big company outsources a lot of its data processing activity to the smaller company. So we basically know that data breach happens with small companies, medium companies, and large companies. And you can be a 15-person company and have you know a million or more records of your customer that could be at risk if, and obviously could create a, an enormous problem if lost or stolen. So the small company myth about you don't have to worry because no one's really paying attention to you, you can't think that way anymore, not in the age of very smart cyber criminals. And, you know, Larry, I have recently received a, a, several calls from smaller companies that did have data breaches, and they said, well, gee, do we have to disclose? I mean, nothing's happened yet. What if, why don't we just wait until somebody calls? Yeah, and I'm sitting there, and I'm going, well, wait a minute. You know, you have, in, in the state of California, if you don't disclose a breach that you know about and, and the sensitive data has been acquired by an unauthorized person, then, then you can get sued for that. So, yep. you know, you don't wait for that. The, the smart thing to do as soon as you find out about it, investigate it right away, speak with the law enforcement, and tell those clients. And you may, you know, you might not have to put it in the newspaper if you only have 20 people who are affected. Contact them, right? Oh, yeah, 20 people, 20 phone calls. You exactly. could do it in one evening, right? It's not going to take a lot of time to deal with that problem. But what you just mentioned is a huge problem. It's kind of like I consider it like a sleeping giant. That is, all of the companies that have a data breach, either A, they just don't have the know-how, the knowledge to know whether or not they were breached. So they think everything's okay, but all their data is floating around somewhere. Mm -hmm. And number two, they do know it's happened, but they do a business calculation. They say, but we're just a small company, and no one's going to really find out. And I predict that it will happen. You know, where a comp an, a, an individual will say, wait a second, I'm an identity theft victim, and they'll do some homework and I'll trace it to the organization, and that will basically lead to a world of hurt. That company would probably be put, put out of business by the state attorney general, coupled with reputation diminishment. It's a huge problem. So comp you know, companies kind of need to get their act together in terms of uh, notifying and having a strategy to do it. Right. And then, like you were talking before, you notify, but you learn from it, and then you build in a lot of safe and secure practices to right. protect the data. Don't even collect it if you don't need it. You know, why keep it on your computer if you don't even need it? Which, Absolutely. Which leads us to identity theft. Now we're going to talk about a little bit. You've done a study, a new study on medical identity theft. And boy, you know, I'll tell you, these doctors, I still go to the doctor and I still see these cubbies with all my data sitting in this folder that anybody could see at night, you know? Oh, absolutely. And and then now uh, I think a lot of these doctors have to do all these um, electronic medical records. So now I just went to another doctor, my my. Uh, you know, just for some a little thing that I had to have removed from my arm, a dermatologist, and they were all using these little iPads and putting stuff into, you know, because they said we have to be compliant. And I was thinking to myself, 
hmm, are these encrypted? Are these iPads encrypted? What are, you know, and I'm trying to ask the questions, and they didn't know the answers, and they didn't know how to use the iPads, and they're, <laughs> and they're putting every, I said, do you have my social in there? And the woman who was taking the data said, yeah, I do. I said, will you take that out of there? I don't know why you need that in there. So she took it out. But, um, you know, because I have, I have health insurance. I said, okay, you can put the health insurance number, but even that's dangerous. So let's talk about what happened with your most recent uh, medical identity theft study. Well, you know, when you were talking about your experience at your doctor, you know, and basically someone behind the desk is getting all this personal information, that happened to me today. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because I also I had to go to the eye doctor and very nice people. You know, I live in a small town and everyone knows everyone else. And, of course, they said, oh, we have this new confangled um, system, so we have to enter, re-enter all of your data. They right. said, what's your social security right, number? Right, right. And it's like in the public forum, you know, and there were like 600 people, not 600, <laughs> but a lot of people just sitting there just saying, hey, what's your social security number? What's your date of birth? And it's like exactly what you need to commit an identity crime. Right. I tried to explain it to this lady, but she was too nice, and my eyes were hurting, so I said, oh, forget about it. Here's my social security number. I give up. But no, the, what we found in this study, medical identity theft is a pervasive problem, and it's not just for those people that have really good health insurance, because obviously, you know, that's probably more valuable than the junkie health insurance, but we find that people who are on government benefits, people who are on Medicaid, people um, have a very, very valuable asset, and it's not unlikely that a lot of medical identity thefts are crimes of, I call them like a Robin Hood crime, where basically someone in your family, like your child or your elderly parent or someone needs health and, uh, health care, and um, they don't have health insurance. And so you say, well, here's my card. And you don't have to show your identity usually. And you know, to, for, for today, you're going to be Larry Poneman. And that person goes in and gets treated and everything's, everything's good. No one's really harmed. Well, in reality, there are lots of things that could go wrong, right? Number one, it is a crime, and so you could lose your health insurance by doing it, and by being a conspirator, you're part, you're part of a criminal enterprise. Yeah, it's but fraud. Also, yeah, but it's, it's fraud. And then the other side of it is um, your medical record now has information about treatment for someone else who basically now becomes you. So when you go in, so God forbid, you're in a car accident and you need blood transfusion, and basically, they pull up your medical record, and there it is, type O, and you're type A, and you're you're dead. Yeah. So I, I'm, I don't know if there ever has, has been a case like that, but I bet it has happened. So the key variable is your health insurance is an asset that has to be protected. And your insurer, many of these cards that are issued to us are static. They don't, collect, they don't contain any kind of picture ID. So if someone seizes that card they can do a lot of damage to you, and it could cost a, an individual a lot of money if, because, you know, you know, the treatment occurred and it happened. You weren't careful in protecting it, and later you find that you're, uh, you know, the collectors, the Dunning notices suggest that you're obligated to pay a past-due bill. So these things do happen from time to time. So it is a big problem. Yeah, so it's not only just financial that it goes on your credit report if if someone doesn't pay, sure. but it really could, you know, be very detrimental to your health. And so what did you find? I know you did a study previously in previous years. Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? What do you think? 
Well, we find that um, as a percentage to total identity theft crime, it's, it seems to be increasing. Now, we have three years, we have three data points, and in every year it has increased from about a little less than a half of 1% of all, uh, of, uh, half of 1% for the population to now about 0.7 of a percent. doesn't seem like a lot, but it translates into millions of people, new people who are victims. But I think in reality, we, we know that, most people don't know that they are a victim of a medical identity theft. So, for example, what might happen is um, someone, for whatever reason, they were not protecting a credential or a, a billing statement or someone within the healthcare provider was basically on the inside of a crime. And it may be very, very hard. It may take years before you finally realize that you are a victim of a medical identity theft, unlike financial identity theft, where if you're diligent and you read your credit reports, you're you know pretty likely to see an unusual pattern. But in the case of medical identity theft, that accountability, that traceability is very, very difficult. And I'm just wondering now, with everybody going with these electronic medical records like what you just went through today yeah. and what I just went through last week, um, that I'm wondering that that is all these electronic medical records are going to be able to be transferred very easily. And if there's if we could set up a system that really would allow us, just as with our credit reports, to be able to access all everything that comes out with our social security number and our health insurance card, that would at least let us have an earlier intervention. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure we're we're smart enough as a society to figure out a way of getting like an early warning alert yeah. that something's wrong in your the world of medical identity. But I think we're we're a long way from that. I think in some ways it's going to be a lot easier to do that if we have a consolidated view of the patient, so that when when the uh, your record is updated in in one hospital or in one provider's office. It basically you're 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 knowledgeable about it. You realize that there's been an entry, and you could say, "Wait a second, I didn't see my doctor in ten years. Why is my record updated?" And you could actually get a reasonable, rational response, or it could be determined quickly that it's an error or, in fact, uh, an identity theft. But my guess is there's the other side, Mari, and that is by centralizing all of this information, are we creating a monster? Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking that, you know, some guy on the inside is going to say, gee, I can make a lot of money selling this information. So what I'm going to do is just, you know, here's the authentication key to get into the database for every American citizen. So I think that it's a balance, right? It has the potential to be really good or really bad if it's not controlled. Exactly. And we haven't done so well, even with, you know, credit reports, how many errors there are. And, you know, what I've noticed in helping identity theft victims and uh, medical identity theft victims is it's harder to change the records because they don't want to change the records. Even if there is medical identity theft, they'll they'll segregate, but they won't actually delete. So that's, yep. that's a whole nother problem. But we'll have to talk more about that because I want to talk a little bit before we even finish about cloud computing because people don't realize that we're all on the cloud, and I am very worried about that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your study with the cloud and what kind of concerns? Oh, sure. Yeah, so, so we've done several studies on cloud computing over the last three or four years, and I will have good news and I have bad news. I've been kind of negative on medical identity theft and data breach. On the good side, on the good news side of cloud computing, it's better. It's getting better. Um, a lot of organizations that provide cloud computing services, 
understand that there's a responsibility to have at least reasonable security. And so some cloud providers are doing a very good job on the security side. And there are organizations like the Cloud Security Alliance, CSA. They've been in existence for three or four years, and they've set guidelines, and you might even call them standards, that organizations are complying with. And even ISO is starting to create standards for data protection in the cloud. So there are indicators to suggest that the cloud, even though it's still risky, is less risky because there are some really good providers. The problem is, in the world of cloud, say you have 100% of cloud providers, maybe 5% fall into the you know, good and secure cloud provider, and 95% fall into the not-so-good from a security perspective. And it's hard to know the good guys from the guys from the organizations that aren't particularly good and safe. So that's why these standards are very, very important, one that can be applied broadly to the good guys and the not-so-good guys and the bad guys. Well, you are um, terrific because you're a good guy, and we are out of time. So oh, we're okay. going to, I mean, always we go so quickly. There's. I mean, I know you are so brilliant. We could talk forever about all these great studies you do. We love you, you, Dr. Larry Kahneman. <laughs> you are the best, and we, we just can't wait to have you back again. So keep up all the great work that you're doing, and we'll have you back again soon, okay? Thanks, Mari. It is always a pleasure. Okie doke. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Let us know about your concerns about privacy in the information age. Write us an email and visit our and come back next Monday morning and listen with us. Okay, thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.